Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Last month, at the AJC Global Forum in Washington, D.C., AJC bid farewell to our former national president, John Shapiro, and elected and welcomed into office our next president, Harriet Schleifer. Harriet holds the distinction of being the first woman in AJC history to serve as our organization's president. She joins us now on AJC Passport to introduce herself, share her vision for the future of AJC, and discuss what matters in our Jewish world today. Harriet, welcome and congratulations. Thank you, Sefi. Um, thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you here. You've been involved in AJC for many, many years in many different crucial leadership roles. You've been the president of the AJC Westchester Fairfield region. You've chaired Project Interchange, the educational institute that we run to bring community leaders to Israel. And most recently, you were chair of AJC's Board of Governors. How is this role of AJC president, how is that different? Actually, uh, asked another way, you know, if you could explain for our listeners, what is the role of AJC president? The role of the presidency at AJC is to be the lay face of the organization and to empower the rest of the members of our organization to do what they need to do to move our mission forward. I'm going to do my best to um, provide substantive experiences for our lay leaders to work hand in glove with our professional staff because they are so great and we just want to make the most of their (laughs) talents and to meet with our interlocutors and have genuine um, but firm and um, honest discussions about the issues that AJC cares about and to listen to our interlocutors as to what issues they are concerned with. Now, AJC is 113 years old. Um, It probably shouldn't have taken us this long to uh, elect a a female president, Um, uh, but but it did. Um, on the other hand, we, we beat the United States to it. Um, h- how does it feel uh, to be the first uh, woman to serve as president of AJC? Well, I'm extraordinarily proud to be given the opportunity. I think that it may open the door down the road for other women to be considered for this position. And it opens up the opportunities to at least another 50% of our lay leadership in the organization. So this is an exciting time for me, but the bottom line will be I will want to do my best no matter what gender I am. Uh, Just to fill in a little bit more background before we move into some AJC kind of specifics, in addition to being AJC president, uh, you also have degrees in education and in law. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your professional background? Yes, certainly. I have a background in education, which I acquired before I went to law school, and I was fortunate to be able to combine education with law and worked for many years as somebody who represented the needs of students 
in terms of obtaining their state and federal entitlements. And I took great pride in helping people who needed a voice to navigate first to um, actually diagnose what the issues were, literally diagnose, and bring to the attention to the families and to the school personnel the supports required for students to become successful and work towards, you know, the the productivity and the eventual graduation of students with high school diplomas. Harriet, what is your vision for AJC over the next three years? My vision is to jump full force into combating anti-Semitism both domestically and globally. It's something that reaches to my heart, to my head, and that's going to be a real priority for me. Um, Related to that is to ensure that Israel and the security of Israel does not become a partisan uh, issue in our government. We have had the benefit in history of working collaboratively all sides of the aisle to protect and ensure Israel's security. And I want to see that continue. And I'm afraid that it is becoming a partisan issue. And I would like to, uh, thirdly, I would like to engage the next generation of leaders. Very important to me is that the current leadership may have had a different experience growing up in this country and with the experience of Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And we need to ensure that the history of the state of Israel is known and younger generations will have the background, the knowledge, and the interest in continuing this mission. Well, that's a particular passion of mine as well, as, as you know, so I'm definitely gratified to hear that. Um, one important tool for reaching younger generations, um, of course, is social media. One thing I've noticed about you since we became friends on Facebook at some indeterminate point in the past is that you really take to heart the idea of using social media as a tool to amplify AJC's message. So every time you know there's a new AJC you know, stimulating op-ed on our website or a press release that goes out, I see you sharing it to your personal Facebook page. Um, what do you think is the importance of social media as a tool for engagement? People, unfortunately, have less and less time to really engage with as many issues as they need to be or would like to be. And social media is one way to bring it to the forefront. So it's in your consciousness. Unless it's in your consciousness, you have no inclination to be active for any causes. So it it brings to the fore important issues It may change your priorities once these come to mind. And so I am really an advocate for social media, but of course, hand in hand with deep relationship building. And I would like to add in terms of priorities, one way in which to combat anti-Semitism and to further the dignity of all people, because AJC is both particularistic in the sense of the safety and security of Jews around the world, but AJC has a very universalistic approach to the civil rights and dignity of all people. And so we have recently um, had the pleasure of announcing at our global forum the Black Jewish Caucus, as well as the Community of Conscience, And so we take relationships with 
all people very seriously and work to form coalitions for the benefit of everyone. You mentioned the AJC Global Forum where you were elected. I'm looking forward to next year's Global Forum in 2020. It's going to be held for the very first time on the European continent. And specifically, it's going to be held in Berlin. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of Berlin to AJC and, and perhaps even the significance of AJC to Germany? AJC was uh, the first organization that reached out to Germany after World War II, um, as far back as 1949. And uh, it really was a very bold step to deal with the past, recognize what we should never repeat again, and develop relationships going forward to ensure that anything like the Holocaust ever happens again. So next year in um, 2020, it will mark the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And that's of great significance to us. And we've worked long and hard with our friends in Germany through the Adenauer Exchange Program to make sure that we move forward together and pushing you know, a like-minded agenda forward. As a child of Holocaust survivors, it must be particularly resonant for you to be helming AJC as we head to Berlin next year. It certainly is. Um, having both my parents uh, survive the Holocaust with really deadly consequences, literally, to their families. My father was the sole survivor of his family, and my mother lost a large family um, except for one brother who uh, was able to survive with her. And I take, I take humanity uh, and the the ability to live in peace and freedom and dignity very, very seriously. So the chance to write new chapters between Europeans and Jews and specifically Germany in this case is of great significance to me. That's a, a really beautiful message. Before we close, I have a final question to close with, but before we get to that, I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about your community leadership and activism outside the realm of AJC. I'm happy to do that. On Jewish issues, I am the secretary of the Jewish Museum in New York, and I sit on a Jewish funeral home. I sit on the board, Plaza Jewish Community Services. Uh, community chapel, rather. And I am now seated on the Council of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations by virtue of being the AJC president. But on a totally secular side, I've always been involved with defending the rights of people with disabilities. I have a child who's developmentally disabled. He will be 33 in September. And I was ironically able to put my educational and legal background toward not only helping my own child, but as I said, working on behalf of other students who really needed a voice. And by the way, the majority of my clients uh, when working were minority students. So that was extra special for me to be able to help other minority populations. It just, it, it just made me feel like I was doing God's work. And, um, and so now that my child is no longer in the school, 
system, I've devoted my efforts to developing a community of 250 people um, have another 46 years, hopefully, of a family slash community experience in New Haven, Connecticut. And um, I'm actively helping uh, those community members find employment, both paid and unpaid. Um, it's really inspiring to hear the work that you're involved in, not only the great work you're involved in here at AJC, but also beyond AJC and, and other really important concerns. Um, AJC's CEO, David Harris, your good friend and, and a regular guest here on AJC Passport, has said about you, quote, Harriet Schleifer's passion for the Jewish people, for core American democratic values for Israel, are distinctive attributes that, under her leadership, will propel AJC's pioneering work in confronting the many challenges facing Jews in the U.S., Israel, and around the world. He speaks about your passion as a defining quality. So before we close, Harriet, can you tell us where does that passion come from? I just think it's who you are. I I think you're given a perspective, you're given a personality at birth, and I think that your environment can nurture that even further. And I must say that my father was the kindest person and respected everybody, no matter who or what they were. And my mother also, who said to me after so many losses that she suffered, um, one day said to me, you know, life can be so beautiful. And it just stunned me. It stunned me that people who really, really saw the worst in people could turn around and come out and see the best in people. So, again, I think you're born with a personality that's innate, but my parents just helped me define that, and I look to them as the most beautiful role models anybody could have. Well, we here at AJC all look to you as a role model for what leadership looks like. Harriet, thank you so much for your service to AJC and for joining us today on AJC Passport. And thank you so much for having me. Two weeks ago, we heard from one of the most outspoken Republican critics of President Trump, Bill Kristol. Today, we're bringing you another conversation we recorded on the sidelines of the AJC Global Forum with Michael Anton, one of the foremost proponents of President Trump and his agenda, and a former deputy assistant to the president. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, you have famously said that the election of President Donald Trump saved America. What do you mean by that? Well, that was actually said in the title of of a book that I wrote that I didn't select. Uh, (laughs) My my title was... um, sort of clever called The Flight Goes On after the famous Flight 93 essay that I wrote and the publisher didn't like it, so they said it saved America. Um, (laughs) So I I don't want to make the claim that it necessarily saved America. I want to hedge my bets a bit, but say that we averted disaster with that election, but America still, there's still a lot of work to do, both by the Trump administration itself, by the Republican Party, by the conservative movement, and by citizens. So we still have to save ourselves, but I think we're at least on the right track. For people who aren't familiar with your famous essay, The Flight 93 election, can you say what you mean about 
how we averted disaster. It was basically a a sort of a a, a doom prediction essay written or published in September of 2016, which said, um, if Trump doesn't win, you know, politics are going to get a lot worse, so much so that I thought small r Republican government would effectively end in the United States, that administrative state bureaucratic rule sort of having formal elections, but the elections having less and less impact, not really meaning anything in terms of changing the direction of policy would become the norm. America would become much more like the EU where, you know, we've seen, for instance, uh, it was June of 2016 that the British people voted for to get out of the EU. And we're sitting here. It's June of 2019. They're not out. <laughs> and there's a question of whether they're ever going to get out. It's uh, That's just one example of the sort of anti-democratic trend I've seen from the the bureaucratization of the world where these sort of superstructures, institutions take over everything and they still hold votes, but they don't really, the votes don't really change anything or do anything. Let me ask you, because you you mentioned Brexit, um, there's kind of this motif that we see in the media when they're reporting on an election like Brexit or what just happened in the EU parliamentary elections or things Mm -hmm. like that, where they they talk about how it's, you know, Brexit obviously predates the 2016 presidential election, but, you know, exporting Trumpism, right? Do you think that the election of Donald Trump was a good thing? Do you think that these other things that we see around around the world are, are similarly positive trends? Uh, yes. That's not to say they're, they're not, there's no tincture of problems. But in general, I think when people stand up for their national interests, when they stand up for votes to mean something for democracy to work against entrenched interests, that's a good thing. So, uh, and, and we've seen this happen in the past where political trends tend to be, tend to align in the U.S. and Europe and in other parts of the world. Maybe not exactly, but, you know, Thatcher's rise kind of predates Reagan's rise and so on. And the UK and the US are moving in the same direction for a while. And then Blair, uh, you know, Clinton predates Tony Blair, but there's a certain similarity between the new Democrats and new labor and so on. So we've seen this happen before. And I think it's something like it is happening again, where uh, this surge of populism or nationalism or whatever you want to call it is or populist nationalism or nationalist populism um, seems to be happening in a bunch of places at once, um, in, you know, and and I do think that's positive if it can be harnessed properly to deliver, you know, positive results. Mm-hmm. But what what about some of the kind of you know unsavory characters that we've seen? Uh, I'll, I'll speak specifically about overseas the the AFD in Germany, the national rally in France. Are you know yeah. people say that this is a ripple effect from Trumpism, but these are some pretty vile. Folks. I, I don't I don't think it's a ripple effect of Trumpism at all. I think what does happen is the superstructures that I talk about, um, they tend to be suppressive of speech, suppressive of public opinion, and basically say, we're going to define the Overton window in a very narrow way, and anything outside of that, we're going to punish. I just, and just so explain the Overton window. The Overton our... window is a concept, I don't even know Overton's first name, but presumably <laughs> there was a man named Overton who came up with this idea that in any discourse or debate, there's a window of acceptable opinion. So the way I used to put it is, you know, from the national security bureaucracy, if one is unilateral disarmament and 10 is launch every nuclear weapon you have, <laughs> right? The debate within the national security bureaucracy is usually somewhere between three and six. And the other <laughs> things are just not discussed. They're not on the table. So what happens, though, when you have that suppression is that moderate and responsible voices find themselves unable, unwilling, or shouted down when they try to express things outside the Overton window. And all you have left are the demagogues and the unsavory voices. It's a great example of why not to suppress speech. And it's one of the things I think we all should probably brace ourselves for more of as the tech companies in particular are cracking down more and more on legitimate speech. You're going to see you know, only fringy people with fringy ideas um, 
express any kind of dissent. And that's not going to be a positive for global discourse. Mm -hmm. um, there's this caricature out there in the media of the Trump voter. Mm -hmm. You maybe don't fit that caricature. Our, our listeners can't see you. Yeah. Uh, but based on what I've read about you and, and what I can see in front of my eyes, you are a very put together person. You, you have a strong sense of style. Um, is that caricature largely right or wrong? And what attracts you to him? All caricatures are to some extent correct, right? So well, maybe not all, but many are. And this one certainly is. I mean, look, Trump's strongest state, I think, where he still has the highest approval rating is West Virginia. So mm. it's, the, it's a very poor state. It's a, it's a state um, heavily in uh, old economy industries, and especially industries that have been in decline for a long time. And so the, you know, the caricature of the, the MAGA hat wearing blue collar guy who's laid off 10 years ago or his factory closed or something, there's something to that. Trump's appeal definitely speaks to that part of the population. But it's broader than that. You can't win a national election without being broader than that, even though he didn't get the popular vote. Um, you can't be at any, you know, he flirts with 50% approval rating all the time. He's never had a solid 60 the way certain po uh, very popular past presidents have. Um, I think that's more the product of just the polarization and division in American politics generally than it is of Trump specifically. It's, it seems to me that, you know, a consensus president, whether, you know, Clinton in the late 90s when the economy was going well or, or Reagan in the mid 80s when the economy is going well, it gets a 60% approval rating is probably, if not a thing of the permanent past, it's some, not something that's going to return anytime soon. So he has to have a coalition. Now, granted, people like me, you know, I'm a coastal person. I was born and raised in California, and I've lived in New York and now in the D.C. area. Um, he's going to be weaker in these areas than he's going to be in the heartland. But he has supporters throughout the country of all kinds of different backgrounds, as any successful candidate, political figure must have. Mike, let's depart the realm of, yeah, uh, yeah. of, of politics and, and talk policy a little bit. You're, you're a foreign policy guy, a national security guy. Uh, is, is America safer than we were in 2016 before President Trump came into office? Uh, I think so. Um, it's very hard to say because you don't know what you don't know, and we can be surprised. I mean, I mean nobody on September 10th, 2001, thought that uh, two buildings were going to, or more than two buildings, were going to come down the next day. Um, but ISIS, if not gone, it's certainly much weaker. It's been all but physically defeated in terms of the territory it controls, in terms of the resources it commands, and so on. So we're certainly safer because of that. Um, I think what the president has done in the Middle East in terms of rebuilding our alliance structure uh, has made us overall safer. Um, in, in recognizing that probably the most challenging threat to the country is China and doing more to confront that threat than any president has recently. I think that's that's a bumpy road for sure because the Chinese don't like it. They haven't been faced with real pushback from an administration basically in 30 or 40 years. Uh, but it will over time, I think, make us safer. So my that's my long answer. My short answer is yes, I think so. Um, AJC slammed candidate Donald Trump when he called for a ban on Muslims entering the United States. Were we right to do so? Well, I don't recall him calling. For, we'd have to go back and check the exact campaign rhetoric. I do know that as a matter of policy, the so-called Muslim ban was nothing of the kind. It was a it was a temporary ban on entry for people from certain countries, the countries which had been identified by Congress as having weak or even non-existent vetting apparatus within their own security services. So in other words, the, these countries that we would work with, they would say, well, 
we have no idea who this person is. They could be a criminal. They could be a terrorist. They could be whatever. And it's kind of not our problem. We would say, all right, if you fix your vetting system, we'll work with you. But until then, we're not, we're, we, you know, we can't work with you. That's the bread and butter of diplomatic entry into the United States of any country is cooperation with the country on the other side so that we have confidence that that country knows who its citizens trying to come here are and knows whether they have criminal records, whether they're dangerous or not. So, you know, because of the mischaracterization of the policy, it's been stopped in the courts and so on, but ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court. But you're talking about the policy that, yeah. that President Trump put into an executive action. I was referring, you know, like you said, we have to go to the videotape, but, but I, I think you said something like, you know, uh, candidate Donald J. Trump is calling for a complete and total shutdown on uh, on Muslim immigration to the United States until we can figure out what the hell is going I on. I remember what was, the hell is going on. And I, if I recall correctly, he said that right after a particularly bad shooting in San, in Bernardino, San, Bernardino. San Bernardino, California. You know, a famous phrase that's rocketed around Trump world, and uh, which I'm sure your listeners have heard, but if they haven't, they'll thank me because I'm going to say it now, <laughs> uh, was by Selena Zito, which has said, uh, you know, take Trump seriously but not, not literally, literally right it's because he shoots from the hip and he says things all the time that don't necessarily represent exactly what he means or wants to do but they represent a sort of broad outline so what he was saying i think was it's clear that on some level our immigration policy has failed right we're not vetting people properly we're not assimilating people properly and we've got to figure out why it's failed and fix it in order to move forward so i think he was right about that as long as you're taking him seriously but not literally and i would again note that look at what the policy actually has been which is another um an, another way of supporting the notion that he's, he's not always literal but he is serious so in the abstract then a ban on muslim immigration to the united states would be a bad thing i think what we need to do is what the president is doing um first of all secure the border build a wall absolutely um for policy reasons, but also for political reasons. I think if you can't fulfill your most important number one promise, you're going to have a hard time getting reelected. Number two, get rid of the most ridiculous aspects of our current immigration system that never made sense, such as the diversity lottery, where we take people randomly from around the world. That's just dumb. I can't think of a better word. Um, and so-called chain migration or family reunification that uh, clearly doesn't work in the interests of American citizens. And then from there, fixate on what he calls a more merit-based approach, which you notice there an immigration proposal does not ban or single out people based on religion or ethnic origin, but it does prioritize educational attainment, skill sets, and so on, the way more successful immigration programs in other countries, in particular Canada and Australia, do. And I think that's the right way to go for America's immigration system. Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. quite publicly, uh, prominently withdrew from the uh, JCPOA, the, yes. the Iran deal that President Obama yes. negotiated. Um, is our withdrawal going to be an, an effective tactic uh, against Iran as long as Europe remains committed to the deal? Well, it, it would be better if Europe did not remain committed to the deal, but it still helps in the sense that the purpose of withdrawing from the deal was to essentially, if not starve the regime of resources, limit the flow of resources that Tehran can spend on terror and just international skullduggery. Um, about, I don't know, 10 days ago, and the U.S. government put out a report, a fairly detailed report, saying these are all the ways in which we, we see the revenues in the Iranian state going down. They even declassified and released some intelligence uh, showing that the Iranians had like contacted their pals in Hezbollah and said, hey, we can't pay you as much as we used to anymore because we're strapped for cash right now. Good. So that to me is a sign that <laughs> it's working, right? Now, Europe very much wants to do business with Iran and they want that deal to stand. So they're going to keep doing what they can do. But we have a pretty big lever in the sense that 
without access to the U.S. financial system, the Iranians are, are very constrained in the business they can do. And when it comes to doing, if, if we make it to the Europeans a choice between would you rather do business with Tehran or with the United States, uh, they might be mad at us. In fact, you can scratch might. They will be mad at us for forcing them to make that choice, but they know in the end that it is not a choice. So it ruffles feathers. It definitely increases tensions between Washington and the European capitals, particularly Berlin, and to a lesser extent Paris, and to a lesser extent London. Uh, but it does also reduce the inflow of resources to Iran, and that, you know, some people have, I think, mistakenly, quite mistakenly, said that, well, getting out of the JCPOA is ratcheting up tensions with Iran and making it more likely that the U.S. will go to war with Iran. I see it as exactly the opposite. The fewer resources that Iran has to spend on terror and destabilizing activities, the less likely war is, because that's what fuels the conflict. It's Iran, you know, screwing around and ways and in places it shouldn't be. And when they lack the ability to do that, the tensions and the conflict go down. Mike, uh, President Trump has taken a number of, uh, of strong stands in favor of, uh, of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, moving the U.S. capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Embassy, the, sorry, yeah, the, yeah. The, recognizing yeah. Jerusalem as, as the capital of, of Israel, um, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Do you think that those steps are helpful toward reaching a final status solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians? So short term, obviously, no. Long term, Yes, right? So the short-term no is because it, it did what everybody said it would do. Uh, let's just stick to the embassy for a moment. It would rile Palestinian public opinion. Obviously, it made Abbas say, oh, I'm not just not going to deal with you anymore. And Although then, there were not... There you were know, not huge rights. But, 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 you know, look, the president was regularly talking to a boss before that, and they haven't spoken since, as far as I know. And a boss has taken a hard line saying, I'm just not going to talk to this administration yeah. at all anymore. Um, we also, you know, the administration had... A quiet support from certain Arab allies, in particular Saudi Arabia and Egypt, you know, they didn't want to be loud about it for their own domestic public opinion reasons, but who are saying, we'll support your plan and we'll we'll try to convince the Palestinians to go along. And crucially, in terms of some Gulf countries, we might kick in some quiet money to help build up the Palestinian state. After the embassy move, they all said, yeah, we can't do it right now because you, you, you made this too difficult for us. So short term, it obviously set everybody back. Long term, though, I think it helps, or it's my hope that it helps, because it removes finally this fiction that the Israelis were ever going to settle for anything other than Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, which it, I've been there twice. It already is the capital of Israel, very obviously. <laughs> Every government ministry except the MOD, which is in Tel Aviv, Ministry of Defense, for those I, I promised that I would explain acronyms, <laughs> is in Jerusalem. It's not like the Israelis are going to pick up and move the capital to somewhere else on the basis of a negotiation. It's going to stay where it is. So there was a reason why we pretended for a while that, well, we don't know where the capital will be because the 1990s, if your listeners remember, uh, I definitely do, were a time of, of hope. Now, in hindsight, we could say false hope, but it really did look for a, a, a long time, for six or seven years in the 1990s, that a, a final deal could be made, right? That became obviously impossible, I would say, by 2000, early 2001. It was clear that the, the hopes of Oslo, 1993, Oslo Accords, had been dashed. But during that window, I can see a case for why the Clinton administration would say, look, don't make us move the embassy now. It would just be provocative. It would anger the Palestinians. We're at this very delicate, sensitive time. We, could, we Yeah, yeah, we know this is a fiction, but let's preserve the fiction, and we can get over certain humps, then we can do this later. Okay. However, the result is in. 
the idea that the location of the U.S. Embassy was somehow the stickler for peace <laughs> has been, I think, over 20 years proved to be totally false. Yeah. In fact, probably the opposite has happened. The fact that we, the United States for so long said, we don't know where the capital is, um, gave hope to certain dead-enders or that segment of public opinion among Palestinians and certain Arabs which said, hey, let's dream big. You know, maybe we can get the whole of Jerusalem as a Palestinian capital or something. And since that's never going to happen, that false belief seemed to me to be an obstacle to peace. Now, it's going to be a while, I think, before what I call that dead-ender public opinion comes to accept that. And maybe there will be some dead-enders who never come to accept it. But it will eventually have to become a majority opinion. And then we will, I think, look back and realize that this was a non-issue all along. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here at the AJC Global Forum and on AJC Passport. Thank you. Happy to do it. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? University presidents. Good for the Jews? This past week, I had the privilege of exploring Israel with an AJC Project Interchange delegation of eight leading university presidents from across the U.S., including the heads of the University of Texas system, the University of Kansas system, the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, the University of Illinois, and others. Together, we traveled the country meeting with Israeli Jews and Arabs and with Palestinians as we learned the ins and outs of Israeli society, culture, and politics, the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the ways in which that conflict can crop up on campus. We also had formal meetings with the presidents of Israel's three leading universities, Hebrew University, the Technion, and Tel Aviv University, and spent time with the president of Ben-Gurion University, with entrepreneurs, diplomats, religious leaders, and writers. As always, I was incredibly proud of AJC's product. The trip was nuanced and engaging, capturing Israel's inspiring spirit, challenging complexities, and, of course, beauty. The participants in the program were friends of the Jewish community to begin with. Now, they are deeply informed on the realities of Israel. Equipped with that knowledge, they definitely are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.